0: Don't look for your career to be a linear, straight path. Follow your interests. Um, your job as a high school student and college student is to become educated, not to become trained.
1: This is Super Shiros, the show where we interview women doing amazing things in the world to inspire, empower, and entertain you. Welcome to Super Sheroz. So today we're here with Robin Beers, and this is her bio. Robin Beers is a senior vice president and leads customer insights and experience design for Wells Fargo. Dr. Beers is responsible for bringing diverse customer listening practices, design capabilities, and experience strategy expertise together to drive user experiences that increase business value. She holds a doctorate in organizational psychology and a master's in African-American studies. So, hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you for Thanks being here. Thanks for on the having show. me. oh okay. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what do you do? What is your role at Wells Fargo? So,
0: I lead a team of designers, digital designers, and design researchers for Wells Fargo's business-to-business online portal, which is called Commercial Electronic Office. So, um, the people on my team are interaction designers, content. Um, And editorial and uh, strategists, um, visual designers, some front-end development, and design researchers who typically have a background in like anthropology, psychology, etc. And so, what we're focused on is designing experiences for employees of companies that use Wells Fargo as their company's bank. So it could be like. Target, like Target, has their um, bank accounts with Wells Fargo, and so their finance employees would log into our portal to make payments or see balances and that kind of thing. So our customers are large, large um, corporations or you know universities, things like that, uh, large organizations, and our users are employees of those organizations.
1: Okay. That's cool. I was, when I read about just everything you did, I was kind of confused, but that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. Um. So obviously this is a high, like a really high job. What was your first job? Your very first job. In
0: the, in ever, in ever? ever, 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 ever. Okay. So growing up in San Francisco, um, I went to school on 25th and Castro, and my mom worked at a coffee shop on on Castro and 24th Street. And so I made a sign that I would do people's laundry for $2 a load if they would leave their laundry in the broom closet of the coffee shop, and then I would go around the corner to the laundry mat and wash their clothes, fold, you know, dry, fold their clothes, and then put them back in the room closet of, of the cafe. So I did that. I was nine years old, and I made $50 a month, which was huge, I thought, in 1979, I think, or 1978. And, um, and I opened my first bank account on 24th Street in Noe Valley, at the bank of Gibraltar which is like not it doesn't exist anymore yeah
1: that's crazy you went from like folding people's laundry to having this extreme job at Wells Fargo that's crazy (laughs) (laughs) so because you started folding laundry how I mean I know you were nine but how did you get from there to where you are now
0: Oh yes. Well, it, it it's been a very much of a zigzag path, and I think a lot of career paths are very much of a zigzag path. And that's sort of one message I want to um, impart to your listeners is that not not to uh, fear the zig or the zag. It's not it's not a straight line. Um, so I came to the the profession that I have now, um, because I went to college for a long time. I did my undergraduate degree in English and women's studies. Then I did a master's at UCLA in African-American studies. And then I did a PhD in organizational psychology. And all of this school was because I had a lot of, um, interests and a lot of um, passion around uh, social justice and equality, um, but I had no idea what I was going to do to make money. And so I, um, I was very much, um, you know, in, in my schooling involved in, in diversity and did a lot of diversity consulting um, while I was finishing my doctorate. And then as I was coming to finish, the first dot-com boom started happening in San Francisco. And I noticed um, that a lot of people with my kind of education and background in social science were starting to work for tech companies. And I'm like, what are they doing at these tech companies? Because I don't know anything really about computers except how to, like, write papers on them. and yeah, I don't, I don't know anything, you know, I can't code. Um, and so I started to do informational interviews with people and it opened up this whole world around, um, what in the olden days used to be called human set, uh, uh, human computer interaction, um, or yeah, human computer interaction, HCI. And basically the premise is, we need to build um, technology products and services that people can use. And so it was sort of the beginning of the usability movement, um, making things um, easy to use, user friendly, all of that language came, came from um, human computer interaction. And they would typically hire people who had a lot of knowledge about human behavior so people from social science fields like sociology psychology um, and anthropology and i discovered that the skills that you needed um, to do design research which is was one of my first jobs at wells fargo was managing um design research projects are the same sorts of skills that we, you would use um when you were doing organizational development consulting, so trying to understand the problem, interviewing people who are close to the problem, um, coming up with recommendations or sort of interventions that could be taken, and and then refining, iterating um, the the product or service based on that, and so doing this kind of you know iter- iterative development. So I I joined a consulting firm uh in the late 90s called sapient and really you know learns for some from from some very um experienced researchers in that field of human computer interaction like how to um conduct research to make technology products and services um more successful through making them uh easier for humans to use and so then that evolved into working in as a as a user research manager at Wells Fargo, and then just over the years, I've been there sixteen years, so long time. Um, I have taken on different types of responsibilities to where now I uh, lead both design and research, but my my kind of core home discipline is is in design research.
1: okay. That's a long time. Are you, I'm, I'm assuming you're happy with your job. Then for you, I've been there for 16 years.
0: Well, you know, things ebb and flow. So sometimes, you know, over, yeah. over the course of 16 years, I've been, you know, extremely happy and proud and, of uh, where I work and at other points in time, I've been like, somebody, anybody take me. <laughs> I want to be doing something, something else. So um, you know, very grateful for the opportunities. I never ever in a million years thought I would work at one place for sixteen years. And um, when I was a student at, at my undergrad was at University of Vermont, and um, and I was thinking about grad schools. And a professor said to me, "Well, you never want to do your undergraduate and grad and grad school." um at the same institution because it kind of sends the message to people like that you can't you can't make it in other environments mm-hmm. or you know you, you you're not adaptable. Um and I sort of feel the same way about you know the perception of staying at one company for 16 years. It's like I look at people's LinkedIn profiles now and it's like, oh two years here, two years there, two three years here, three years there. And I'm not saying you know, that's a bad thing. And I'm not saying that staying somewhere for 16 years is a bad thing, but it just sort of makes me wonder like what else is, is out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've gotten a lot, you know, I haven't been in the same job for 16 years. I've had probably six to eight different jobs in the same company. And given that Wells Fargo has, you know, 180,000 employees, it's kind of like moving to a different company. Yeah.
1: I would think that if I saw someone who had 16 years at one place, I would personally think that I would want to hire them because that means that they're not going to quit or they have good morals or whatever. Like I, I personally would think that they're a better employee than someone who has only I two. like the way you think, Kaylin. Thank you. <laughs> what does a typical workday look like for you before, before quarantine? And then how has that changed now that we're in quarantine?
0: So before quarantine, I would get up at five thirty in the morning, and drive down my hill to um, a parking lot and do boot camp uh, with my trainer and a few other women from six to six forty-five, and then I'd race back up the hill, get my son ready for school, get myself ready for for work, then jump in my car and drive like a maniac to get to the Larkspur Ferry in in Marin, where I live, um, to get the 820 ferry, Ferry for 30 minutes to San Francisco, usually talking to my friend Beth on the ferry or doing work or catching up on email or whatever. Then I would walk as fast as I could. To my office at 333 Market, ride the elevator up to the 24th floor, and hopefully be sitting at my desk by 10 after 9. So that was just the first few hours. Oh, my gosh. I can't even believe it now, to be honest. So um, that I would work a, a you know, pretty full day, just meetings, meetings, meetings. A lot of times, I'd be on the phone a lot. So like I did all that crazy commuting in order to take calls on the telephone so yeah and you know like the highlight was going to you know Julie's Kitchen salad bar Um, and then I would book it back to the ferry and get on the ferry going home and um, get out of the ferry parking lot after like a good 15 or 20 minutes you know it's like One red light goes after another red light as everybody's trying to get out of the parking lot. And then uh, be home by like 6.15, make dinner and do it all again the next day. So it was a pretty crazy, crazy pace.
1: Yeah, sounds like it. Now,
0: I I just can't even believe it. And my mother, who, who was living nearby me at the time, would be like, oh, you're so busy. You work so hard. And I'd be like, well, no, what? This is just normal. But now that I've been living in, you know, in, in COVID times for the past year, and we don't commute, it's just, I have to say, it's been the biggest silver lining to all of this, you know, all this tough stuff that we're all dealing with of not seeing each other. But now, I, you know, I still wake up early, but not 530 early. And I do my exercise, but I do it over Zoom. And a lot of times I'm starting my meetings much earlier, um, you know, so not 9.30, but more like, you know, between 7 and, and 8.30. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably working more hours, but I'm commuting less and I'm just like not as frantic. Um, so I'm much more calm. And it's just cool to be able to, you know, I made my son his lunch today while I was on a call and, you know, being able, particularly as a woman, as a mother, to be able to take care of things at home, as well as work. Now, yeah. that having said that, I think that the pandemic has really hurt and, um, you know, burdened a lot of women um, who are doing childcare and cooking and keeping the house together and trying to work. And I was going crazy with that for for a while, Um, but I've sort of, you know, figured out what I can and what I can't do.
1: Have you, well, before COVID times, did you ever think of moving to San Francisco so it shortened the commute time?
0: I did the opposite. So I used to live in San Francisco and I was having such a hard time um, trying to find a good school for my son in San Francisco Mm -hmm. that It didn't, you know, either cost $35,000 a year or, you know, I could get them into as a public school. And I just was having a hard time figuring it out. So that's why we moved to Marin.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I'm sure the commute is harder for you. But I can understand that as a mother, you'd want to move for your son's needs. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, I know that you had your son at an older age, as people say, or whatever. I don't think there's an age limit. Whatever. How did that affect your job, life, just everything? Like yeah. having a kid. Well,
0: there is an age limit to having a kid. That oh, is a yeah. real thing. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't Medically. Forget to have yeah. Don't forget to have babies. Um, yeah, so um Wells Fargo is a very family-friendly company. Most people work one of the reasons why they work for Wells and why they stay is because um, they're able to balance family life uh, with work life. So when I reached my late thirties, I decided, okay, I'm not, I, I'm not married. I haven't, you know, met the person that I want to be with. So I'm going to have a baby on my own. And so I. Um, went about the process of, uh, finding a donor and I was lucky enough that I, um, got pregnant through my help of my doctor's office. Um, the, the second time, um, that I tried and I had, um, Dexter when I was, um, like 40, a little older than 40 and a half. Um, and, I think the number one thing that enabled me to continue with my career um, and also, you know, be a mom was that I found an amazing nanny when my son was three months old, who became like my my co-parent. Um, and I wrote an article about her on LinkedIn called My Most Important Hire. So if your listeners are interested in that, um, they, they can read that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I definitely noticed that, you know, at 40, my career was definitely taking off and I was getting more responsibility and I had this responsibility at home. Um, but I had so much support, um, from, from my full-time nanny, um, that it was able to, I was able to work that out. And I, you know, I, I think people will say like, there's never like a perfect time to start a family. I'm looking at people now who started really young and their kids are, you know, off to college or graduating from college. That looks great. I mean, I would love it if like, i could be like, my son is graduating from college. Like I've done my, I have I su- succeeded, but he's only 11, you know, so mm-hmm. he, he will be going to college when I'm about ready to retire. So it's, you know, there's trade-offs to everything.
1: I mean, on the plus side, though, by the time he goes to college, you'll have the house to yourself. There's that. Well,
0: my husband will still be here.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's still a break. (laughs) My parents are like, okay, once you guys are out of the house, we're going to like move to Costa Rica. And we're going to have a tropical garden. We're going to have the whole thing. (laughs) They're very prepared. <laughs> They're very prepared. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also read something that you're on the design and innovation board, which is basically your whole job. But it was some like you have events. What's that? Yeah. So um, that is a conference uh,
0: organization. So they put okay. on conferences on um, design, experience, design thinking. And so as a, as an advisory board member, I help to, um, you know, suggest topic areas, speakers, that sort of thing. And, um, my passion and interest in being on advisory boards like this has been to make sure that there's diverse representation, um, at conferences, both in terms of, you know, um, ethnic diversity gender um and that you know that that we're not just um sort of sticking to kind of one narrative of like who's a designer or what is design um but really making it a uh, diverse and inclusive space
1: okay um how does was before I phrase this how much how's the diversity changed since you done this conference or your work
0: um well I would say that you know I mean everybody is paying a lot more attention to um racial justice and equality since the um killings of Breonna Taylor uh Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd last year and the um protests that resulted from that so um I think that there there were some conferences that I went to where it was just very clear that the organizers were were extremely intentional about having a diverse, um, having diverse representation in terms of the speakers um, and others where it was like, oh, it'd be good if we did, but but we're not going to be intentional about it. So I think um, anybody who wants to remain relevant in whether it's um, hiring for full-time positions, whether it's organizing a conference, whatever it is, they have to um, they have to make a commitment to themselves um, and to their organizations that they're going to be intentional about representation because they believe that it will make the end result higher quality and that was always sort of what I would would push is like you know it's not it's not representation for representation um, sake it's so that we have a higher quality event
1: okay how did those killings (laughs) influence your work like did you have to have a big discussion about it and yeah all that
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, that's a great question. So, you know, obviously I I have a little bit of a different background since I worked professionally as a diversity and and equity consultant, both in the U S and in South Africa Hmm. um, in the nineties. And um, but yet when I, you know, when I sort of pivoted my career towards um human centered design, um, it was almost like I felt like I had left behind my roots in diversity um and inclusion, equity and inclusion. And I sort of always felt kind of badly about that or or, or unfulfilled. Um, and so for me the the uprising, um you know, as anguishing as it was you know the reasons why this uprising was was occurring was an opportunity to sort of reclaim um a, a, a very strong part of my values um mm-hmm. and to you know really bring those values into my current role in my organization and beyond my organization and other other parts of my life and so um what I did as a leader was called a, a meeting with my team, which is about a hundred people and, and just really shared like how um, the, this, and this was right after George Floyd's killing, how this event was affecting me um, and where I stood on it. Um, and then being very unequivoc- unequivocal, unequivocal, that I um, was, you know basically sick and tired of black people dying um, and, um, and and wanted to see an end to police brutality and lenience around police brutality. And then I opened the floor for people to share their comments and, and their experiences. Um, and I think you know, um, people, People did really open up and, and shared what they felt and what they thought. And I think I created a space where they could do that because I was very open and vulnerable. Um, and I also participated in in other calls like that. You know, my boss called a call like that and, and so forth. Um, but then, you know, we started organizing around, um, okay, what is Wells Fargo like as as a company for black African-American employees. And um, we've held uh, conversations and listening sessions and created action plans around workforce outcomes. So increasing diversity, but increasing mentorship and sponsorship for uh, African-American employees, as well as increasing um, advocacy for, outcomes for allies, how to become an ally, how to upskill middle managers' proficiency in having conversations uh, around race and equity. Um, so there's a ton of work to be done, real action, and not just conversations. And so I've, you know, personally redoubled my commitment to that. Um, and I know this is a long answer, but... But I think it's important to mention um, that, you know, the the spate of killings were, you know, the most, I think because of the pandemic and everybody was home and they had time to tune in. And they were also deeply feeling the um, our interconnection of, you know, like we're all staying home because there's a virus that because we're interconnected, I could give it to you. And then you could give it to someone else. I mean, it was just very Mm -hmm. palpable. And so then when this, you know, human being was murdered before our eyes on television, it just hit in a completely different way. But before then, there had been, you know, many, many other incidents and names, um, you know, and after Charlottesville, I had reached out to the diversity and inclusion folks at Wells Fargo and said, Hey, you know, I want to bring the author of white fragility, Robin D'Angelo into Wells Fargo to talk about, you know, how whiteness and white privilege um, creates an environment where we cannot openly talk about racism. And I didn't get anywhere with that request Um, to do that. And in fact, I got, you know, a lot of resistance. And at the end of the day, I was told that, you know, as a company, we were not ready to talk about whiteness. That was the exact quote, we're not ready to talk about whiteness, like they wanted to do diversity inclusion, but they wanted it to be like, here's a fireside chat of, you know, this person who has this element of diversity, or that element of diversity, but not to, have a self-reflective conversation of like, what does it, what does privilege mean? What does it mean to participate in the system uh, that perpetuates privilege while others, you know, face discrimination? Um, And so I feel like there has been a lot of movement there in terms of people's willingness to, to, and hunger, really, you know, we saw the New York Times bestseller list after, you know, during the summer, it was like, how to be an anti-racist. So you want to talk about race, white fragility, you know, so people were hungry for it. And now I think it's about keeping up momentum with real action.
1: Yeah,
0: that well, was a really long.
1: No, 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 that's, fine. that's <laughs> fine. I love the answer. Well, first of all, I'm just glad that you guys got to talk about it cuz i'm i'm assuming that definitely like got rid of some of any like any discomfort that there might have been just surrounding the topic and um uh, also just about what you were saying about privilege in my like ethnic studies class we we learned about our different traits and how if it's either if our dominant traits are positive or not positive or um are privileged or not privileged and how Like, just the fact that I'm 14, I'm more privileged than my younger brother, who's 10. Just little things like that. And it was just cool to learn how the smallest things I could have privilege for.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I I just had an epiphany, an aha moment about about privilege Um, today, actually. um, I was reading something about, you know, bringing your authenticity, your authentic self, work and that's something I've always prided myself on is that I'm like a little bit quirky a little bit outside of the corporate mainstream like nobody would ever be like oh yeah I could totally see you working in a bank you know it's more like oh wow that's interesting you work at a bank <laughs> um and and also just you know in my interpersonal communication kind of just saying it like it is and and I've always like kind of, you know, patted myself on the back for that. And I realized today in something that I was reading that that is a form of privilege, you know, because of being white, because of being a senior vice president, because of having a PhD, because of being in this culture for 16 years, I have the privilege to show up and kind of be and act however I want to act, Um, you know, within Professional standards, but you know, I can push the envelope too. Whereas, you know, a Black woman just starting out in her career who doesn't know people, who doesn't have a senior position, you know, and if I say to her, like, well, just be your authentic self, it's like, I don't know these people. I don't know how they're going to treat me. I don't know how they're going to judge me. And so for me, that was a, that was a, an aha that let me know like people need to um learn their way into how to be their authentic self in a professional environment and for some people that takes longer because they need to understand um, with whom and how they're going to be safe to do that
1: well how would you tell people to be their authentic self like what advice would you give someone yeah. I mean, if, if you had asked me
0: that yesterday, I would say, well, just say whatever you, you know, like tell the truth and, you know, cut the bullshit and, you know, just, oh, I'm probably not supposed to swear because there's <laughs> kids listening to this. You can bleep that out. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but now I think I would say, um, you know, yeah, I would recognize, okay, yeah, we do have to weigh, um, you know, what is the situation? What are the dynamics in the space? You know, who who has the power here? And, you know, just, I would say, challenge yourself to push the envelope a little bit, but still stay in, in your comfort zone and find your people reach out to people that you think are interesting that you kind of want to model your way of being after their way of being, um, and ask them questions, ask how they got comfortable, you know, doing that. Um, you know, this year I've been approached by, um, several women to mentor them, um, And each one, you know, kind of wants something different from the interaction. Um, But I think it's important to um, create circles of safety for yourself at work.
1: Okay, well, you said ask the question, so I'm going to ask it. How did you get comfortable? (laughs) Um,
0: How did I get comfortable? Well, for one thing, I... I went into my job thinking that it was going to be a short-term thing and that I was going to leave and go out on my own and have like my own customer experience consulting practice. Um, So it was sort of like, you know, I'm just visiting <laughs> for a while. And when you kind of have that attitude of like, you're not trying to stay forever or move up the ladder, you kind of give yourself a little bit more freedom. Mm. Um but the really, really critical thing is that I have had an amazingly supportive boss that I've worked for, for most of my career, like almost all of it. And she is an incredibly, um, she's been a great champion of mine, and has put me forward for, for opportunities. Plus, as a leader, she displays something that I think is really important, which is that um, she cares a lot about solving problems and not like who has the status, you know, or who, who's where on the hierarchy. She really wants to, um, you know, just do the work. And so she approaches people, interacts with people in a very status neutral way. And I think when leaders are like that, when they're kind of status neutral and they, and they come at you with the, with the um, stance of like, good ideas can come from anywhere and like, I don't know the answer and you don't know the answer, but Mm -hmm. together we can learn our way into the solution. um, I think that invites people to bring their authentic selves um, out And, I mean, people say to me all the time, like, God, I can't believe how authentic you are given, you know, like you're at this place in the organization. And, and it also, it it kind of baffles me because I think it takes so much energy to not be authentic, right? I mean, I know I said in a, a moment ago, I said, you know, you have to be safe enough to be authentic, but, but you also have to recognize what it's costing you to, to hide your true self. Um, And, and I would hope for anybody that they would be striving to be a part of, of an organization or a company where um, being their true self was um, a table stakes and table stakes means, you know, Mm -hmm. that that's a bottom line requirement.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense because if you're try, if you're not being yourself, then that's just like living a big lie, and that seems a lot harder than telling the yeah. truth, as you were saying.
0: So when I was doing my my dissertation research for my doctorate, um, there was a woman that I interviewed who had gone into business for herself as an organizational coach, um, you know, executive coach, but she worked for a company for. 30 years as an Mm -hmm. internal HR person. And she was married to a woman like before marriage was legal, but they were committed and had been together for, you know, 25 years, had, Mm -hmm. you know, children together that they were raising. And she never came out at work. So she worked at the same company for 30 years. And, and she was like, you know, she said, it definitely hindered my performance It hindered my relationships with people at work. Um, And she's like, you know, can you imagine 30 years of Monday where people say to you, you know, oh, what did you do this weekend? And you kind of leave out a whole huge part of your experience as a person. And I just, that blew me away. And I was like, oh my God, I don't ever want to be a leader where people feel that they have to do that. And I would never
1: want that for myself. That's a long time. That's crazy. Well, um, that's all I have for you. One last question, though. If you could travel back in time and talk to your 14 year old self, what advice would you give?
0: I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, I would say, um, You know, don't look for your career to be a linear, straight path. Follow your interests. Um, Your job as a high school student and college student is to become educated, not to become trained. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an obnoxious question when adults, you know, ask us when we're young, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? I hate it. Say you know you should say, probably a job that hasn't even been invented yet, mm-hmm. but my my goal right now is to become educated, yeah, um because one thing you know will will lead to another um, you know i I had a whole career in the fashion industry before I went to graduate school, so you know you never know right. what, yeah.
1: Well, before when I was younger, I never knew. But now that i have gotten older, I'm I've gotten into like acting and stuff. So usually I'm like, I want to be an actress. But you know, the zigzag line it could change at any point. One day I'm just yeah. like, I don't want to do acting anymore.
0: Yeah, you could be the next Shonda Rhimes. You know,
1: <laughs> maybe You're like
0: I want to I want to be behind the camera. I want to I want to be writing the stories or yeah. or who knows what. But whatever, I can guarantee you, your acting will those skills will um, serve you and show up in whatever roles you have, because there's so many, there's so many skills embedded in what you have to do to be, be an actress and to get out there and to put yourself out there that it's going to, it's going to pay off dividends, but it just may look really different.
1: That's true. Well, thank you. I really appreciate, appreciate you doing this and I loved having this talk with you.
0: Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for having me, Kaylin.
1: Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Once again, we want to thank Robin for being on the show and talking about the great things she's doing in the world. It was definitely inspiring knowing that she started washing clothes and is now the executive director at Wells Fargo. Share this show with other superheroes in your life. Now go explore the world.